Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. It's really nice to uh, be here this morning and see lots of familiar faces who I don't get to see anymore. Um, So yeah, thank you for having me. Um, As Liam said, my name is Hannah, and <clears throat> I've been in Christchurch for a long time now, I think well over 10 years, and um, this is where I met my husband, Johnny, and um, it's very much like home for me. Um, and I will indeed be continuing our series on David today. So we've been looking over the summer at the life of David, which is documented in the two chapters in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And uh, we've been learning from David's successes and failures. I was very relieved that my passage is not one of his failures, which are trickier to deal with. Um, But mine is um, a really beautiful story. Um, So it's going to be a nice nice morning and a really encouraging one. And um, before we read the passage, though, I'd like to give you a little bit of context so that the, the story makes some sense to you. Um, So let's just quickly rewind to David uh, killing Goliath. Um, It's the famous story, and we heard Lars preach on it a few weeks ago. So David is a young, unassuming um, boy, really, who no one expects uh, to be able to do um, anything apart from rear sheep. And he is able to defeat Goliath, the giant, the Philistine giant, and with it, uh, overthrow the Philistines for Israel. And so he becomes the hero of Israel. He becomes the guy everyone wants to be and the guy every girl wants to be with, as they say. Um, And everyone is talking about him. Everybody loves him. Um, He is the star of the show at at that point. And of course, as we know, Saul, who's king at the time, becomes very jealous, um, starts to actually fear David and his popularity as it threatens his own popularity, and he is very insecure and afraid. And um, during that time, Saul brings David to live with him and his family and his house as a way of controlling David and making sure he doesn't kill any other giants and get any more popular. And in this time, David meets Saul's son, Jonathan. And um, that is where uh, Jonathan and David develop a deep and um, wonderful friendship. And we're just going to read a few verses um, from 1 Samuel to give you an idea of their relationship. So in 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 to 4, we read, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Some Bible commentators comment that um, Jonathan is considered a Christ-like figure in the Old Testament. So many characters, many stories throughout the Old Testament um, give us an idea of what is to come in the person and life of Jesus. Um, And Jonathan is one of those. Um, We see that in the metaphor um, of him taking off his royal robe and literally placing that on David. And um, Jonathan really... um, 
actually gives up his position as royalty for David. So Saul was planning on killing David on various occasions, and it was Jonathan that protected him, that warned him of plans that Saul had to take his life. So Jonathan literally preserves David's life, and in so he gives up his royal position. He sacrifices that for David's sake. Now, um, Jonathan dies in battle alongside his father, the king Saul. And um, at that point, David is anointed as king, first over the tribe of Judah and then over all of Israel. And he enjoys a period of favor and God's blessing on him as he rules over Israel and um, its relationship with surrounding nations. And that is where our story today um, comes in. So we will be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 9 today. And the words will be up behind me. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amuel in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amuel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. Before we carry on, I just want to point out that Liam thought that the greatest challenge of this preach would be saying Mephibosheth many times in a row, but Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. I feel I've mastered that. Um, so this is an amazing story, um, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a beautiful story of a journey, really. It's the journey of this man, Mephibosheth, going from a place called Lodabar uh, to Jerusalem. But it's about much more than that, really. It's actually a story, if you look deeper, about a man's journey from living in a place of shame to living in a place of honor, It was interesting, yesterday I was preparing for this talk and I was worshiping God and praying and out of nowhere, I was not, I had not been thinking about this, it 
it hadn't been in my mind at all before um, yesterday morning, but suddenly I was reminded of some of my own losses in my life. And it just uh, came out of nowhere, so I felt it must have been God. And with it came um, kind of a new understanding of how those losses have uh, in some ways negatively affected my life. And, and along with that, also a sense of God's love for me there, too. But um, it, it was so um, startling, and I don't know, this, this reminder of my losses and the sadness that came as I was reminded of them put me in such a great place to read this story, because I think it put me in a frame of mind and kind of an open heart that I was able to, this story really uh, impacted me in a powerful way as I studied it yesterday. Um, because this is a story about loss and what God wants to do with us in our losses. And I feel that um, oftentimes we minimize our losses. We say, oh, it wasn't really that big a deal, whether it's something small or big. We often do that, oh, it, I'm fine, it's, it's not a big thing. Um, but I just wanted to invite you this morning uh, into a place of honesty just with yourself as to your own losses in your life. Because um, I think that is a place where this story can really speak to us and actually become our story. Um, we can become Mephibosheth. So, um, yeah, if, if you are willing, then um, please do approach it with an open and a soft heart. So, focusing in on this man, um, Mephibosheth. So, um, remember, Saul and Jonathan have been killed. Um, Saul and Jonathan have been killed, and now uh, David has been named king over Israel. Now, this David, uh, Saul wanted to kill. So, this isn't great news for Saul's family. And as David becomes king, we read um, uh, earlier um, in, in Samuel that basically the, a nurse picks up Mephibosheth in fear and in haste to flee where Saul's family had been living and flee somewhere to where they wouldn't be found, um, basically out of fear that they may be killed. And it is in this uh, hurry and in this crisis that Mephibosheth is dropped as a young boy, and that is why he's lame um, and cannot walk or work. So Mephibosheth is living in a, a place of fear. It seems he is the only one of Saul's family left. He's on his own. He is afraid for his life because of his family's his background. He is lame, so he has had his very kind of uh, legs stolen from him, his ability to work. Um, this would have had huge social um, implications for him at the time and economic implications in terms of not being able to provide for himself or a family anymore. But also he has lost everything about his what was for him in the future. So the legacy that would have been left for him, his inheritance, his position in a royal family, everything has been taken as Saul and David, um, Saul and Jonathan die and David becomes king. And the word Lodabar, where he's living, actually means uh, no pasture, no communication, no word. Such a picture of isolation and uh, seemingly hopelessness for Mephibosheth. I want to suggest that actually Mephibosheth represents all of us, all of humanity. 
Is loss and pain and isolation something that not every human being who walks this earth has to deal with? An American psychiatrist, Irvin Yalom, um, talks about the givens of existence. This underpins some of existential therapy, um, that there are these givens of existence that all humanity has to deal with as we come into the world. And amongst those givens is isolation, meaninglessness, and death. And even as believers, you know, we do have an anchor for meaning, for a hope, for a future. But even sometimes we can find ourselves asking in our circumstances, God, where are you? I know I have asked that question to God in all honesty at times, and I wonder if you have too. And Mephibosheth at this point is very low because Ziba has told him, the king is summoning you. He wants to bless you. He wants to restore to you everything that was your family's. He wants to invite you to live in Jerusalem. And then he's brought before the king. He's in the king's presence. And the king says to him, Mephibosheth, I want to bless you. I want to give you back your land. I want you to come and sit as one of my sons at my table. And Mephibosheth has the saddest reaction. You would have thought there would at least be a glimmer of excitement in his reaction. And yet he says this, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? It seems that Mephibosheth has... Uh, given in to believe the most damaging lie that a human being can believe, and that is that he has no self-worth, that he is worthless like a dead animal. And I think that sometimes it seems that difficulties and difficult circumstances can make it sometimes easier for people to believe this lie, as often we even subconsciously will equate our difficulties, our losses, with somehow being something we deserve or something that God is doing to us because he thinks that is what we deserve. And in that can come a shame, which is what we see on Mephibosheth. But do you see God in David's actions towards Mephibosheth, that he searches him out, that he summons him into his presence, and then he redeems his very life? But Mephibosheth, it's like he can't even see what's happening to him in that moment. He can't live in the joy of the redemption that is happening before his very eyes. Because shame sometimes can blind us to the redemption and the goodness and the wonder of what God is at work in in our lives, what he is currently doing. We are blinded to the reality, the spiritual reality of what God is speaking over us and doing with us. I want to say to you this morning that if you are living in a place of loss or difficulty and struggling there, then it is only because the story is not over yet. If you had looked at Mephibosheth's life when he was living in Lodabar, you would have felt hopeless for him. But with God, that is not the end of the story. And the end of the story with God will always be redemption. So circumstances and difficult things, they come and they go, but let's not let it bring shame on us and our sense of identity. 
I love the verse in Isaiah 54. It says, though the mountains, the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. I spent the last, last weekend in Switzerland um, in a place called uh, Labrie. My sister's been working in this uh, Christian um, study and retreat center. And it is, uh, uh, I'm speechless, it's so beautiful. It's um, on the side of a mountain overlooking the most enormous valley. I can't describe it and photos don't do it justice. You know what I mean by these, these things that, yeah, when you see them in reality, these mountains are absolutely breathtaking. And I literally spent hours sitting on the balcony of the chalet where the study center is, just staring at the light on the mountains and the way the light changes throughout the days and the clouds resting on them. And the whole scene is just breathtaking. And I think the reason it is so, mountains can be so comforting um, to just stare at is because they are just so, there's nothing like them that are physically so unmovable, so unshakable that I've been there long before I was born and will probably stand along after I die. And they are just faithful and seemingly almost eternal. There is something unmovable that is so comforting about them. And yet this passage in Isaiah says that even Though the very mountains are shaken, God's unfailing love for us is, is um, more solid, more enduring, more eternal than the physical mountains that we observe in this world. That the very landscape of our physical surroundings may change. That would not change the fact that God's unfailing love for us remains and that his covenant of peace with us will never ever be broken. Now, um, this is an amazing thing, obviously. It's almost uh, too good to be true at times, God's love and the way it is enduring and eternal. And um, what Mephibosheth experiences is almost too good to be true. I mean, I imagine this is the last thing he ever thought could happen in his life, that he would be brought into Jerusalem, that he would have, um, he would basically be very wealthy, um, he would have servants, that he would always have enough, and that he would sit, sit at the king's table for the rest of his life. I want to, uh, I was, well, I was thinking about this and how um, it's often uh, when something kind of so out of the ordinary, so too good to be true happens to us, we ask why, and the why helps us to either accept or not be able to accept a very generous offer. So, are you to imagine with me that, um, this is very <laughs> hypothetical, but um, definitely hypothetical, um, I want you to imagine I come, come up to you after the service, I come to you specifically and I say, I want to give you 10,000 pounds. I have 10,000 pounds in saving and I want you to have it. Now, I imagine you would ask why. And I think that my response as to why I want to give you this money would determine whether or not you accept my gift. So scenario A is that I say, um, I know this is far-fetched, but um, bear with me. I had my wisdom tooth out last night and they put me under general anesthetic. I don't think I've reacted very well. I went to bed and I've woken up very confused about where I am. I don't know what I was saying earlier as I was preaching, by the way. I'm totally out of it. Um, but anyway, I just saw you and I thought this would be fun and this would be great. I just want to give you my savings. 
Um, I imagine you probably wouldn't accept the money, and if you would, then the takeaway from this morning is you shouldn't, and that is wrong. <laughs> then on the other hand, again, very hypothetical, but I want you to imagine I say to you, well, um, you don't know this, but you, your mother or father, they were working in a university a few years ago. I came to London as an 18-year-old, and I really wanted to study this very particular course in London, um, and it was going to enable me to do, have this specific career and pursue this specific life, and it was what I'd always dreamed of. And as I stood at the admissions office of the university, they told me, oh, you're an American citizen, and you're not entitled to home fees. You're going to be charged £10,000 a year because you're international. Um, so either the money or you can't study. And I broke down in tears and I totally lost it. Um, all my dreams were going down the drain in that moment. And your mom or your dad pulled me aside and they said, they were working in that admissions office, they said, look, I want to cover your fees for you. Go and enroll and I'm going to cover it. And I said to your mom or your dad that day, one day when I can pay you back, I'm going to give your children something of what you've given me um, when I'm able. And maybe you would uh, be more likely to accept, and it would be okay for you to accept. Um, but that's kind of what's happening to Mephibosheth in the story. So um, David makes it really clear why he's showing such extravagant generosity and kindness to Mephibosheth. And it is for Jonathan's sake, because what Jonathan had done for him, the kindness and the grace and the sacrifice of Jonathan is paying for the honor that is being shown and the redemption that is being shown to Mephibosheth. And of course, that is what it is for us. The kindness, the grace, and the honor which is we are invited into by God. If you ask why, there was a price that was paid. There is a reason God is offering you this grace and this honor. Jesus has paid the price already. On the cross, he did the work of making it possible for broken human beings who experience isolation, who experience meaningless, who all experience brokenness, to be called into the presence of a holy, sovereign king and to be said, you're going to be my child. You are my daughter. You are my son. On you, I place honor. On you, I place inheritance. On you, I place purpose and legacy. It's not because of you. It's nothing to do with you and everything to do with what's already been done by Jesus. It would be arrogant and conceited for us if we come to a place of faith, of believing that Jesus really did live and he really did die on the cross and he really did rise again, if we come to a place of faith in believing that, it is arrogant and conceited for us to stay in our little caves of shame and low self-esteem and not choose to believe who we really are in him, who he says we are. I used to look at people who had particularly, uh, you know, people who are just have a solid core, and they know who they are, and Christians who, they're like, you know, God has plans for me, and um, I believe it, and he's gifted me, and I'm a child, and um, he loves me, and I'm confident, and often I used to look at that, and it would uh, really confuse me when I was a new Christian, like, where does this come from? There, is it arrogance? Uh, is it conceit? And I realized it's really not. It's actually the deepest act of humility to say, 
because we all know our own flaws. We all know what's wrong with us. It's incredibly humble to say, you know what? I know all that, and so does he, but I'm going to accept the price that has already been paid for me, and I'm going to hear God say these words over me, and I'm going to live in the fullness and the confidence and the assurance of them. And just to say on that note that um, this, is like, this is a great way to see it because um, it helps us to see that we have an incredible privilege in terms of sharing this. The hard work has been done. Jesus has paid that price. We have the, the privilege when we are believers of telling other people about the good news that it is finished, that Jesus has done the work, that God invites us. The invitation is that of David to Mephibosheth. It's not bad news. It's not scary news. It's not weird news. It's very, very good news. So, uh, finally, where does David end up in the end? Well, uh, let's look at what his future holds for him, and, and let's look a bit deeper and see what our future holds for us if we respond to the invitation. Well, he's invited into Jerusalem. So he's gone from low debar, from no pasture, no communication, to the city where the king lives, the city where the temple will be built, and God himself is going to live. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in the temple, in the Ark of the Covenant, and that is where God lives. So this is a great place to live. This is kind of top pick um, on the planet at this point in history for um, those who believed in God. So he's been brought from the lowest seeming place to the highest place. And he's invited to the table. He's invited to share meals with the king. And David said, with um, him as, he as if he was one of his sons. Um, I was thinking just this week about the significance of family meals because Maddie is two, my daughter, and um, she has been asking me this week for TV dinners. Yep, it's really that low. Um, I'm admitting, I'm being very vulnerable here. Um, so what TV dinners are, are um, the days when Maddie is looked after by her childminder when I work. I pick her up around six, and often she doesn't nap those days. And this is horrible, a horrible scenario any day for me. So she's not napped. That means she's absolutely exhausted, grumpy, wants to just sleep by the time she's in her buggy with me. And she will inevitably fall into a very, very deep sleep that is near impossible to rouse her from. But she hasn't had her dinner. I haven't changed her nappy. She's not in her pajamas, so I can't put her to bed. So I get home, and I'm, you know, I do try to rouse her some other way. I, like, stand her up. She falls down. We tickle her. She's asleep. We offer her her favorite foods. She's uninterested. The one thing that will get her from her sleep is um, TV, a little show called Bing. Very, very entertaining, of course. And um, so Bing wakes her up, and... Um, uh, so we give her this, ashamedly, a TV dinner where we just shove food into her mouth as she watches a show, put her in her pajamas, and put her to bed. And um, this is very rare, don't worry. And, um, uh, but Maddie will often ask for a TV dinner. And um, I was telling her this week, I was trying to explain to her why 
Uh, we don't do TV dinners every night, and why, what it means for us to share dinner as a family. And I was saying to her, Maddie, I love when you sit at the table with me, when we get to eat the same food, me, you, and Daddy, and we talk, and you tell me the favorite part of your day, and then you ask me questions, Maddie. I love when you ask me questions. I love when we get to talk and be together and eat the same food and then go to bed all at the same time-ish, I wish. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, just be a family and do it together. And then when I was preparing this, it just moved me that Mephibosheth is invited into, into a family, into a, to a table, to feasting, to probably fighting around the table. All the stuff that happens, the, the horrible and wonderful of being a family, that is what uh, Mephibosheth is invited into. And of course, again, another parallel of what we are invited into, a family and very lastly, what does David do for Mephibosheth? He restores his inheritance. Actually, this was something that, when going back to me thinking about my own losses, this was something in particular which was uh, I found really painful to think about. Things that have been stolen, maybe even from my family, that I feel we've lost. And I just felt God saying, I am a God of new inheritance, of greater inheritance than you would have had without him. See, the things that we can lose, money, sometimes our families, our friendships, our jobs, a sense of security, all those things, like the mountains, are shakable. But when God gives you an inheritance, a spiritual inheritance, which can translate into physical too, by the way, but when he gives you inheritance, when he places honor on your life, when he puts you in positions of influence because he has done it, no one can take what God is giving you away from you. And ultimately, his love and his uh, fatherhood over you and your sonship towards him, those are things which are eternal and lasting and no one can take away. Uh, when I was thinking about all of this yesterday morning, I, I don't know if you knew the song, I Will Build My Life. Up, um, it's a house fire song, but there's, you, you'll recognize it when I say these words if you know it. Um, the, the song says, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I will put my trust in you alone. And I will not be shaken. It's just going back to Isaiah, to the mountains. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet his unfailing love for us, for us and his covenant of peace towards us will not be removed. I wonder if the band could come back. Um, and I would love to pray for us before we worship again. So maybe we could stand. I just want to read a scripture over us before I pray. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption into sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. So Abba, Father. Abba, Father. We thank you, God, that this is our story. This is our story, God. 
And I want to speak over every man and woman and child in this place that they are beloved son or daughter before you. And we speak over you the honor that God places on you. We speak over you inheritance where there has been loss, God. We pray, would you provide eternal, enduring, um, unshakable inheritance for us as a people and as a church. We pray, finally, that you would fill us with your spirit, which makes us cry out, Abba, Father. Fill us now as we worship. Thank you, God. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.